0: So this is lesson three, and we left off in the middle of Romans chapter one. We're going to go through the book of Romans this year, and we left off with verse 17 and 18. We're going to go back, look at those two verses. We have to go back to verse 16 because verse 17, will refer back to that as we'll see in a moment. Verse 17 says this, for... Therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written and the just shall live by faith. So what I want you to see is that word for refers back to verse 16 which says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And as I pointed out last week, those are really wonderful words but they belie Two covenant theology that has become popular, so popular of late. These words belie any theology that says that we don't have to witness the Messiah Yeshua to the Jewish people. The verse says the gospel is the power of God for salvation for those who trust in God to the Jew first, and then the non-Jew. And I want you to know that the Bible speaks of no other power of salvation and it is to the Jew first. And that doesn't mean that they received it first, and when they rejected it, it went out to the non-Jews. But it tells us that there is a priority. Paul, who was the apostle to the non-Jews, he went to the Jews first. Acts chapter 13, 5, 14, 12, 17, 1, 18, 4, and nineteen, eight all record Paul going to the synagogue to first preach to the Jews of the city. So let me ask you this. If Paul thought the Jewish people had another covenant and really it wasn't too important to witness the Messiah Yeshua to them, why would he go there and preach first? I mean, after all, when you read the book of Acts, it was these synagogues he, from these synagogues that he received the stiffest resistance. So if it was unimportant, why would he just not avoid the Jewish people? If it was unimportant, why would he have anguished And said, I wish that I myself were cut off in place of my people Israel. You know, some say it's important for us. Oh, we just need to be friends to the Jewish people. But we shouldn't witness Messiah Yeshua to them. And then they pride themselves as being friends and supporters of the Jewish people. Well, I don't think that that was Paul's attitude. If he thought that it was more important to just be friends to the Jewish people than to witness Messiah Yeshua to them, why would he go to them first and witness Messiah Yeshua to them? nor was friendship more important as he was being beaten for the faith. It certainly wasn't James' attitude as he was being thrown from the temple. Those things don't hold water and are nothing more than being ashamed of the gospel, being ashamed of the good news. The gospel of Yeshua, the Messiah, is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And that's as relevant in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. The fact that everyone needs Yeshua is the good news. It is part of the good news. There's no good news aside from that. Because I can tell you now that aside from that, you are dead in your transgressions and all that's left for you is what Paul's going to get at in a moment, the wrath of God. You know, I went through this because you have to see that the gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Gentile. The gospel is for the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That's why I had to back up to this verse. Now I want to read 17 again. This time's from Young's Literal. It says, for the righteousness of God in it is revealed from faith to faith according as it hath been written, and the righteous one shall by faith live. Listen to the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, in the gospel is revealed his character. His character is revealed in the gospel. Remember, we went through the character of God the other week when we looked at Exodus chapter 34 verse 6 where God tells us who he is you see in the gospel the mercy of God is revealed in it his graciousness and his love are revealed in it his long suffering is revealed in the gospel his goodness and truth are revealed in it his forgiveness of iniquity transgression and sin are revealed in it but don't forget as Paul will remind us that his judgment and his wrath are revealed in it as well. All of these things are more, are, and more are revealed to the world in this good news of his. Those things we covered in the first two lessons. Those things we covered on Rosh Hashanah and the following Sabbath are revealed in the gospel. And all of those things are to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. All of these things are revealed in it. And if you change the good news, then you diminish from the righteousness of God. If you change the good news, you diminish from his character. If I walk around and preach that God is merciful and we just have to live and let live, we need to be more accepting of everyone, no matter what they prefer to do in this life, in their private life. They're God's children. We need to accept them as they are. After all, God made them that way. Then we change the gospel and we remove the righteousness of God from it. If we say, as did Paul, as he fought against those in Galatians, that you have to become Jewish and be circumcised and keep Jewish customs and traditions or you're not saved, we've removed the righteousness of God. And if I say that the Jewish people have a covenant of their own and they don't need the gift of God, we remove the righteousness of God. And I'm going to tell you something. There are a whole lot of people who are going to stand before God, particularly preachers and teachers, who are going to stand before God and answer for profaning His name and removing His righteousness from the gospel. The righteousness of God is God's holiness. It's His character. It's His holy standards. The righteousness of of God are the attributes of God those things that we just mentioned and they are revealed in the gospel you see if i live according to those righteous standards if i re, then i reveal his standards to the world but if i don't live according to the righteous standards then i reveal something else to the world and that something else is sin it says the righteousness of god is revealed in the gospel in other words The guilty will not be cleared. Those who transgress God's holy standards, which I might add are revealed in His Torah and throughout His Word, but also in the life of Yeshua, those who transgress those things have a debt to be paid. There's a price for not living by the holy standards of God, and it must be paid. That's why Exodus chapter 34 verse 7 says, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, folks, I'm going to tell you now, there's no get out of jail free card. Except in the game of Monopoly. More accurately, there's no get out of death free card. Since the wages of sin are death, it must be paid because God's righteousness demands payment. On the other hand, that same righteousness of God has made a way for you to pay the debt. He's made a way for it to be paid. In the gospel, God's plan and method for making man righteous again is revealed. And it's not through a Sinai covenant, as two covenant people would assert. It's not through any attempt to obtain it through your own works. But the debt was paid through an innocent life lived and the death of that same innocent life, the Messiah Yeshua. The gospel also reveals the payment for your transgressions. It's secured through trusting in what God has done. There's no other way. There's no other payment, period. This is the way God planned from the very beginning, and it is the only way. Amen? But then he says, from faith to faith, according as it hath been written, and the righteous one by faith shall live. From faith to faith, by faith, the righteous one shall live. That's a whole lot of faith. Now, I want you to know that he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 and if we go back to the, and look at Habakkuk 2.4 and we look at the Hebrew, we can get an understanding of what he means by faith. In other words, we get back to the intended meaning and the Hebrew word for faith in the verse in Habakkuk is imunah. And I put the definition up here. Security, moral fidelity, stability, truth. The righteous shall live in stability and truth and moral fidelity. In other words, the righteous shall live by the righteous standards that are representative of God's character. The ones he lays out in his Torah. Loving him with all your heart, soul and mind and loving your neighbor as yourself. And if we back up to the gospel, if we back up, it says the gospel is faith to faith, and we can assume that from the very first time you trusted God and accepted the gospel, that's your first show of faith, and from that, faith and trust are each growth in moral fidelity, truth and trust. That's the next faith. So from the original faith to each growth in faith, and we can all, we can All relate to that. If you think back to the time when you accepted Yeshua, from the time, from that time you have grown in faithfulness to God and trust and stability. You are or you should be more secure, more stable in your knowledge of God. The fact is, you should be so secure that you have relationship with Him. You have a relationship with Him that keeps you on a path of righteousness, a path of righteous behavior in your life. Because he speaks to you and he guides you through this life. Because you have relationship with him. You see, that's what's really new about the new covenant. You want to know what's really new about the new covenant? you your new. You've grown from faith to faith. In other words, the other definition of faith that we get, I like, is in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. You see, Hebrews takes our definition a bit farther. He tells us of the certainty and the stability, but he adds, of what we do not see. So even though we don't see Messiah's rule, we live our lives under his rule. We look at his word. We conform our lives to what is there. We go into our prayer closets. We seek him because we're certain that he'll answer. And we do that out of our love for him and our neighbor. But, if for no other reason... We're also certain that he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. And all of that comes from our initial faith in the work of Messiah Yeshua and grows faith to faith. Our certainty, our stability, our security grow from faith to faith as our faith is exercised and our knowledge of God grows. And this knowledge that God does not leave the guilty unpunished is why it's so important. The righteousness which is from God is the power of salvation to the Jew first and then to the non-Jew. It's been revealed in Messiah Yeshua because something else is being revealed. In verse 18, it says, For for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness from men who have... Suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Notice that word for there again. That word for is referring us back to verse 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God. For salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is from faith from first to last, as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. They will live by faith because the wrath of God is being revealed and trusting the good news will save you from the wrath that's being revealed. Paul is saying that the righteousness of God and the power of salvation is being revealed because the wrath of God is also being revealed. You see, if it weren't for the wrath of God, there would be nothing to be saved out of. If it weren't for the flood, there would be no salvation of Noah. If it weren't for the wrath, there would be no salvation for Lot. The wrath of God is a topic that we look at in the study of Revelation. We covered it slightly in the festivals. It's poured out on those who refuse to repent from their wickedness. It's poured out in the last days after God gives seven wake up calls to the world to repent. There are seven trumpet calls of the book of Revelation. And then the wrath of God is poured out on those who fail to repent, to fail to return to God. But I want you to know that the wrath of God is revealed in other ways. Paul didn't say it's, revealed, it's going to be revealed. He says it is revealed. It's revealed today. And the way it's revealed today is how it will be revealed in the end of days as well. The wrath of God is revealed to us in the gospel itself. Think about it. When you accept the good news, there is or should be an element avoiding the wrath of God. Right? At least I know there was for me. I looked at myself and I saw no hope, no future, no peace. And the only thought that I thought that awaited me was death and wrath. No no peace. In that same moment, I realized it was because I hadn't walked with God. And I knew that Yeshua was the only way out of the dilemma. And so I cried out to him. But it was the wrath and the fear of the wrath that turned me to him. Even though I didn't know at that time that the death and judgment I feared was the wrath of God. I just thought it was death. So what I'm saying is that in the gospel itself, the wrath of God is revealed. Listen to Paul again. And this time I want to leave verse 17 out. Let's just... Read uh, 16 and 18. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. In Yeshua the power of God for salvation for those who believe. Well salvation from what? From the wrath of God. From the consequences of the transgressions of God's righteousness. You know, I'm going to tell you something. That is why the first few chapters of the book of Genesis are so important. Because it reveals the creator of the age in which we live and the creator of man. Why do you suppose they fight so hard to get creation out of, the sco- out of the schools and out of our life, that creation? Why do they fight so hard to promote that we climbed out of a pool of slime? Precisely because it shows that God is creator, and as creator, he has a reasonable expectation from what he created. He has the right to set the standard for that creation. And if the standard is not met, he has the right to do with his creation as he chooses. Listen, if I make a watch, I have the reasonable expectation that it will keep time. And if it doesn't, I will take that watch, I'll discard it, I'll disassemble it, I'll destroy it. It's of no use to me because it doesn't do what I intended it to do. It's mine. It's mine. To do with as I please. I made it. Well, the same is true with the creation of man in this world and this age in which we live. It's God's to do with as he pleases. And like the watch, if his creation doesn't meet his expectations, he can end it. The difference being that we're living beings and the watch, not so much. So God set out in his word his reasonable expectation. And he also told us that the wages of sin are death. He has told us the consequences for not meeting those reasonable expectations. He'll discard it. You, the only thing is in the end of days ahead, this wrath is going to be much worse. Sinners and the ungodly bring disaster upon themselves and upon the nations and the peoples they live with In the last days, we will have diseases afflicting the wicked. We're going to have moral depravity and disease is the consequence. We're going to have drunkenness and addiction is the consequence. But ultimately, death and separation from God is the consequence. In the book of Revelation, we find that the disasters that afflict the wicked will increase. And if you read Revelation, there's a statement made after the warnings are poured out. It says, still they refuse to repent. Even though God had made it plain to them that the judgment that was falling on the world was from him, the people did not repent. Because God made it clear to the world they will have no recourse with the final casting into the lake of fire because... God made it clear what was about to happen and what they needed to do. Repent. But then as Paul will say next, there's nothing new because God made this clear from the very beginning. It's always been clearly understood. You can't look at the intricacies of the world and the vastness of the universe and not understand that it had to be made. We'll talk a little bit more about it later. But let's look and see how Paul tackles the Roman worldview. You know, in the Hebrew culture, and really for the most part of the Bible, it presents a worldview. And that is, there's Israel, and then there's the rest of the world. Israel and Gentiles. Those with God, those who know God, those who love God, and are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are Israel, and those without God are Gentiles. That's the Hebrew worldview, and it's a simple worldview, and it's a worldview that the world will be judged by. We're going to be judged. If you know that you've lived by relationship with God, you're in. Simple, right? Paul deals with that statement when he says the wrath of God is being revealed to the godless. Paul, however, is going to deal with the Roman worldview as well. They have another slightly more complicated worldview. First, they have this intellectual worldview, why, by which there are those who are educated and those there are the ignorant masses. The intellectual disregard God is non existent, He doesn't exist. The other view is that there's Rome and then there's pagans and barbarians who are the rest of the world, very similar to the Hebrew worldview. But Paul must take these worldviews and bring those who believe them into a true biblical worldview. Because if you don't realize that you're wrong, then you have no need to repent, do you? For those who reject God for whatever reason are without excuse. Listen to what he says in verse 20. For since the creation of the worlds, God's invisible qualities in his eternal "...power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles." Notice again that we have this word for at the beginning, referring back to the wrath of God this time. There is no one who could not have or should not have understood that God exists because he's revealed in the creation, in all that God has made. Listen, just to look at and exist within his creation leaves you without excuse for not seeking him. God's qualities are apparent to all. There's no way that you can look at the universe or the world around you and not know that God exists. That's what makes evolution so unbelievable. Look at the world. Is there anything? Is there one thing in this world that you can hold, a computer, a car, a toothbrush, something as simple as a piece of paper that you can say someone didn't create or that it created itself? No, right? So how can you look at the vastness of the world and the variety within and say it happened on its own? Well, if all of this happened on its own, why didn't paper happen on its own? You can't. To the intellectuals and in the scientific community to deny God that God exists is to become so wise that you are a fool. The intellectual response has been to deny God and to think of oneself as gods. And because of that, they made images of men. The Roman emperors thought of themselves as sons of God or as God. They made images of themselves and made images of gods to look like them. The other response has been to know that God exists but to replace his invisible qualities for images of animals and birds and reptiles. You know, Rome had a place called the Pantheon. And it was a temple to all gods. Agrippa built the very first one, but it burned around 125 AD. And then Hadrian built another one. And Hadrian says something about it that reflects what Paul says here. I want to read it. My intentions had been that this sanctuary of all gods should reproduce the likeness of the terrestrial globe and the stellar sphere, revealed in the sky through a great hole at the center, showing alternately dark and blue. The temple, both open and mysteriously enclosed, was conceived as a solar quadrant. The hours would make their way around the caisson of the ceiling so carefully polished by Greek artisans The disk of light would rest suspended there like a shield of gold. Rain would form in its clear pool on the pavement below. Prayers would rise like smoke toward the void where we place the gods. And the point being that the glory of God was replaced for images of men and animals. You know, Hadrian himself... was was not so inclined to believe these myths, he was one of the intellectuals he thought of himself as God. Listen to what is said about him. Hadrian visualized himself enthroned, directly under the pantheon's oculus, a near deity around whom not only the Roman Empire, but the universe, the sun, and the heavens obediently revolved. Now that's thinking a lot of yourself, isn't it? The problem is the result of both of these is the same. The ignorant response is to think it's ignorant to think that your cow of your cow as God, and the intellectual response is to think of men in general as God. Both are foolish and receive the same response from God. Listen to what Paul says in verse twenty-four. Therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Notice what it says. He gave them over. It makes it sound as if God had chosen them to be spiritually corrupt or that God arbitrarily decides who's going to turn in repentance and who is not. Nothing can be further from the truth. Because one of the things that God gave man is free will, and the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. He will not trample your free will. If you believe the lie and desire to move in directions that will lead you that will lead you to your ultimate destruction, then God in honoring your free will will turn you over. He won't stand in your way. There are degrees of yielding to to the temptation of the adversary and his armies of demons. This yielding leads to sin, violation of God's Torah, violation leads to habitual violation and oppression. And oppression and habitual violation leads to a complete taking over. You see, free will and pride combine to lead you to be an unteachable person the bible refers to such a person as hardened one of the things that paul will be up against in rome is the worship of self and the worship of the human body which as he just said leads to sexual impurity lust after the body leads to sexual oppression and obsession you see without god And the moral compass that he gives us in his Torah, we're given over to perversity. Think about this. One of the lowest depths that you can sink to is to sink to behavior that's detestable to God. One of the things that is detestable to God is to lie with one of your own kind, male or female. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22 says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. You see, this is a rebellion that's so bad, it's gone to such a degree that you finally rebel against God's order of things, you finally rebel against the very way he made you. And he says of that behavior, it is detestable to me. You see, if the adversary can get you to believe a lie and reject the truth, you're going to be given over in some way. If the adversary can get you to believe the lie that he made people naturally in this way, so as men lying with men and women with women is natural and not really what is detestable to him, you have exchanged the truth for a lie. What does it mean to be given over? Well, it means really that you're no longer in control, but another or something else is in control of your life. It means that the God of Israel is no longer attempting to turn you from your sin. It means you've resisted the truth to the degree that God no longer attempts to intervene in your life. You can get to that point in your life. Verse 26 says, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. I don't think that there is any thing, any better example of rebellion or being given over than to tell people, to actually tell people that God ordered this behavior that is so detestable to Him. You know, there's a move in the church today to accept all orientations. Let me say something. How can you, if you love God, the God of Israel, accept what is detestable to Him? How can you do that? If you have the spirit of God within you and you're saved by Yeshua, how are you going to accept and be one with that which is detestable to God? What can impurity have to do with purity? Homosexual behavior is a complete giving over to the adversary of God who is Belial. Listen to what uh, Paul says about this. What harmony is there with Messiah and Belial? Does God love the homosexual? He sure does. He'd love to see him repent from his sin, so he could draw close to him and and he could avoid the wrath. But he will not draw close to him until he repents. Homosexuality is a sin of the worst kind. It's a total rebellion, a total departure from the way God designed man. There's a saying, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. And it applies here. He loves all men but he doesn't love what men do. The homosexual says, God has made me this way. Not so. The world and its corruption made you that way. Listen, I'm going to apply it to myself. Because of the sins of my fathers, I was born with a desire to drink and in turn become addicted. It's the way I was born. But I don't have to be that way. I can choose every day not to be that way. So for the homosexual, if they think that that is the way they're born, well, then the same thing is true. You can choose not to do the things that are detestable to God. And the good news is God will help you. You may have noticed that Paul lays out a course of destruction. The steps we take in our destruction. And the first step is not to recognize God or glorify him as creator. The next step is that they did not give him thanks for what he had given them. And you know you can see these same two steps are the charges that are brought against the kings of the earth in the book of Isaiah. If you fail to recognize God as creator and provider, and you do not look to Him, then your outlook on life and your reasoning will become profane and vain. If you don't follow His moral compass, you'll be given over to the lusts of your flesh. You know, I love the song by Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan said, sang a song, You're going to have to serve somebody. Now, it might be the devil... Or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You see, in essence, that's Paul's worldview, put into one sentence. You're going to serve somebody. You see, when you reject the divine God of Israel, then you're going to serve the profane. You're going to serve the created. If you fall into this profane, vain reasoning, your mind becomes darkened and you become fools. I mean, look around you. How can you reason that you are God? And that generations removed, you climbed out of a slime pool. That's a fool. By the same token, to look around you and decide that birds, fish, and reptiles are God and are responsible for the creation you see, that's moronic. To look at creation and think that it created itself is so foolish. I don't even have words to explain. When there is nothing in the world that you can lay hands on and that made itself and yet you believe that the diversity of the creation itself created itself, that's a fool. And the next step is falling into depravity, changing the glory of God, of the invisible, incorruptible God for what is seen and what is created. Because they worshiped Created things, the text says God gave them over. Three times he says this. God gave them over three times. What does it mean? Well he honored their free will and gave them over to the worship of created things. Because they loved and loved sexual immorality, he honored their free will and gave them over to the lusts of their flesh to the degree, to the degree that they even say God created them this way. Because they gave Glory to created things to demons he honored their free will and gave them over to demons friends take heed because God will honor your free will and will give you over to it. It's a slippery slope or if you turn to him he'll honor that same free will. I want to read 26 through 32. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they, do, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I'm going to tell you something. Paul gives a pretty dim worldview here. Pretty dim view of mankind, amen? He does not take we the, we are affirming an all-welcoming attitude that you see in the world today. Let me tell you something else. Paul would not fill up a football stadium with this worldview. Paul's worldview is those who have accepted the gospel and are on a path of sanctification, and then there are those who are not. And it's a very simple worldview. So Paul is saying, read the Bible. Are you conforming to it? Or have you said in yourself, I know better than that? When you read the Bible, it it condemns sexual immorality. And if you decide within yourself, as many have, that you know better, and we can accept perversion and be affirming of everyone, then you have changed the truth of God for a lie. If you read the scriptures and see that the Sabbath is truly the day of worship and rest, that it is a day of holy convocation or gathering together together, and you fail to rest and gather together on the Sabbath day, then you've exchanged the truth for a lie. Just as simple as that. If you disregard God and His words, these things are the ultimate end. You're going to have to serve somebody. Either you're going to worship and serve the King and Creator, or you're going to worship and serve His creation. And if you do that, there are plenty of voices waiting to lead you down a path of depravity. And make no mistake... There is a place you can fall to that there is no return from. Men are not given forever to repent. We're given this life to repent and turn to God. Problem is that these things cut life short so you end up burning the proverbial candle at both ends. Men can actually reach a place where they're so prideful, so hardened that they cannot repent. And this inability to repent takes us back to what we learned in Revelation. After God's warnings, it says, still they did not repent. And the thing you need to see here is that there is a progression of sinful man here. Men are not born to pray, but there's a process we follow. And the process is passed on from generation to generation.